If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me for the last time, hopefully not the last time in your life, but for the last time here in this context for a while anyway, to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. If you're visiting this morning, even if you're not, if you're just forgetful like I am, we have spent the last 12 weeks slowly making our way through this first century letter, seeking to to digest its truth and apply it into our lives. And now here we are, we have come to the end of our study I love finishing books of the Bible. It's, it's bittersweet. There's a sense of accomplishment and yet also a sense of, uh, now what? Where do we go from here? It's been a good study. But we come to the end today and you could argue in many ways that we ended last week, or at least John, the writer of this letter, ended kind of his main argument last week. And in a way, that's true. Verse 13 is where we ended last week. And while verse 13 starts a new paragraph in our English Bibles, it's really the final statement of John's whole letter, of his entire case. It's not on the screen before you, but let me read. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. End scene. Cut. He could have ended it right there. John's case is God's case. Remember last week we looked at the previous verses that hammered home God's testimony and God's case for who Jesus was and for what Jesus has done and, and the call to rest in that, to rest in what God has done and believe and obey and love, right? Those are the three signs. Believe and obey and love. Out of that, these are the telltale signs that you know Him and that you are known by Him. So as we come to verse 14 then, this final section, it, it can feel a little bit odd. It feels a little bit strange. John's made his case, and normally New Testament writers, kind of after they've finished making their case, they'd either end the letter or they'd close it with some kind of personal greeting to the churches they're writing to. John chooses not to do that. Instead, he, he gives a series of, of final encouragements, final admonitions that can feel a little bit disjointed, I think, when we first hear them. But we affirm this morning that this is God's Word and that it's useful for us. And so let's listen and with the Spirit's help seek to understand what He wants us to know, what He wants us to take away from this passage this morning. I'll try to help do that. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through the end of the letter. As is our custom, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. He says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, 
and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, I hope you heard it over and over again as we listen to God's Word, as we hear God's Word, we listen for things that are repeated. Repeated for emphasis. And there is a word, there is a phrase that is prominent in these verses that I just read. And the phrase is, we know. Verse 15, we know that He hears. Verse 16, we know that we have. Verse 18, we know that everyone born of God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, we know that the Son has come. We know Him who is true. The Apostle John is saying after a long letter where he sought to instill in God's people confidence and assurance to not forget a few final things that are for certain. These things are for certain. And so you and I, known by God, knowing God, we can know these things. So what do we know? Well, I want to hopefully, hopefully, distill all of these we knows into two. That we can then unpack as we walk through these verses together. The first one, the first one is about prayer. So two truths, and the first one's this. We know that prayer works. We know that prayer works. You see, assured of eternal life, John now assures his people of the efficacy of prayer, the value, the power, the fruitfulness, the privilege of prayer in the life of God's people. You know, prayer in our culture is a, is a funny thing. I think I've mentioned this in previous sermons, in previous contexts. Everyone knows what it is, but most don't really know what exactly they're doing. And I'm not necessarily talking about in the church, I'm talking about in the world. We hear these phrases from on-air reporters after such tragedies like 
the one that we saw on the news in Kentucky. Well, our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Kentucky. And perhaps that means something to the one that that states it. I don't know the heart of every person that says such a statement, but I, I think in many cases, that kind of statement is just sentimental. It's It's nothing more. But brothers and sisters, not so for you and I. That's not the case for believers in Jesus. But even for us, prayer prayer is the most natural thing, right? Just, Just talk to God. Just talk to your Creator. And yet we find that the most natural thing for us to do is often the most difficult thing for us to do. And so John speaks this morning to the church, not to the world, but to you and to me, reminding us that as we walk through our lives, we have a lifeline, we have a gift, we have a privilege. And John doesn't give this full-on theological treatise on prayer and all the dynamics of prayer. That's a different sermon series. But he does say a few key things about prayer and about what it means and about how it works. And so as we think about the fact that we know that prayer works, as, as God by His Spirit reassures your heart, not just that you are God's child, but that you can come to Him Let me remind us of the three things that John says here. First of all, under this first point, he reminds us of our standing. Of our standing. It's the same basic point he made back in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, we have confidence before God. This is no small matter. The people of old, God's chosen nation, Israel, didn't have the kind of access to Yahweh that we do. Theirs was mediated. Theirs was shrouded in in mystery and ritual and even fear. But no more, John says. Jesus has come. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews in that letter, which maybe we'll study at some point here at Ascension, goes on and on about how Jesus is better than anything that came before Him. He is the high priest that has torn the curtain separating God's people from His presence. He is the high priest who was tempted and yet without sin. He was the high priest who knows our struggle, who understands our weakness. And what does the writer of the Hebrews says? Therefore, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy. We who know this Jesus get to stand before the God of the universe. He listens. He hears you. He actually pays attention to you. We know that prayer works. But even more than standing, John reminds us here that he answers. He answers. Or more precisely, as John states, we have the requests 
that we've asked of him. That's a present tense verb in the Greek. We have. John is saying not only does God hear us, but we don't have to fret about what he's going to do. Our petitions have been granted as long as, and he's already indicated where he's going with this in verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will. Now this is an understanding of prayer that we find from John in his gospel and his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Specifically, he gives us these quotes from Jesus in his gospel. John 14, 13, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. John 15, 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done, period. John 16, 23, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray in Matthew 6? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, your will be done. And so John is saying that as we come before the Lord, as we do so as his children, in that identity we have His priorities. Now that doesn't mean that we know His secret plans. That's what we call the hidden will of God. But that we know to some degree what His desire is for us, right? We call that God's revealed will. So we pray for Him to accomplish things in us and in our world consistent with who He is and what He desires. Those are the prayers that God delights for His children to pray. So you can pray for a godly spouse. You can pray for contentment in singleness. And you can have confidence that you have been heard, that you have what you ask while still not knowing specifically how God will answer that prayer. And so we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying earnestly that this cup that the Lord had given him would pass, that there might be some other way that he could save a people and set apart a people for himself. And yet he ultimately cried, what? Yet not my will, but yours. God heard him, but there was no other way. God hears us, and sometimes the answer is exactly the same. While at other times, pleas, the pleas of his people are specifically the means of his will. You see, this way of looking at prayer removes the notion that God is for us some kind of uh, divine butler. It removes the notion that God is some finicky deity that is constantly shifting and changing His mind and we have power over Him to change His will. No, instead, in prayer, we express our dependence upon Him and we trust in His goodness towards us because we are His children. He is our Father. We know that He has our best interest in mind. That if we ask Him for a fish, He's not going to give us a stone. He loves us and responds accordingly. Here's a helpful quote. Prayer rightly considered 
is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God and made into channels for the forces of His will. Every true prayer then is a variation on the theme, Thy will be done. That's what John's trying to say. We could unpack that more But there's one more thing that John wants to say about this certainty that we know prayer works. And it has to do with others. It has to do with others. It's It's like John can't quite leave the issue of loving the body, of loving one another. One of these telltale signs that he has returned to over and over again in the book of 1 John. Here he shows us, he reminds us of a practical way to love your brother or sister. He first says, if we see them in sin, if you see your brother or sister in sin, as we live our lives together in some way, right? It implies that we know each other to some degree. If you see your brother or sister living in sin, don't ignore that. But pray. Now, maybe with, with some relationships in the body of Christ, you have the opportunity, you have what we call the relational equity to, to get in their grill a bit more, right? And to really hammer home what you see going wrong in their life. But we don't all have that same kind of relationship with one another. So John says, don't ignore it, pray. Pray because God hears. Pray because God desires that His people walk in repentance and faith. Pray because He changes the courses of people's lives. He restores life through the prayers of His people. I'm going to be honest with you. I I wept this week when I came to this point in the sermon, because I had to confess that I don't believe this at times. At least I don't pray like I believe it. I either want to fix people, or I want to just write them off. And John says, no. Love them by praying for them. Because prayer works. And I think about some of our kids. Don't stop praying. God is in the business of bringing wanderers back to Himself. Prayer works. But John says another harder thing about intercessory prayer in this passage. John qualifies his encouragement with with a statement, verse 16. A statement about a sin that leads to death. Towards those, John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. We read that and we say, what in the world? Is John just like sinfully angry and and fed up? I mean, that seems pretty 
pretty harsh. Well, one thing we've seen about John in this whole entire letter is that John is not interested in mincing words, specifically about these false teachers who have come in the midst of God's people and spewed lies and created anxiety. No, he's described them as being antichrists, remember? As children of the devil himself. So we read these words, we we must hear them in the, in the light of the whole letter and specifically who John is talking about. Let me remind you, verse 19 of chapter 2, he describes these people. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have kin- continued with us. You see, John, in a letter meant to assure God's people, John isn't suddenly sparking anxiety in all of us as we wonder now if a past sin of ours has risen to the level of a sin that leads to death and therefore ought not be prayed for. No, brothers and sisters. The sin that leads to death is not an accidental, not a momentary sin. The sin that leads to death is likely those whose hearts are cold and hard, resulting in this openly deliberate denial of who Jesus was and what He calls His people to. In other words, if you're worried about you committing the sin that leads to death, your worry reveals that you haven't. The book of Hebrews speaks to this in a couple different places, one of which, <clears throat> excuse me, one of which is chapter 6 where the writer says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit to restore them again to repentance. Now, the writer of the Hebrews is not speaking of losing our salvation. We could pull in other Scriptures to make the point that that is not what the Scripture teaches. But the writer of the Hebrews is speaking of participating in the life and the blessings of the covenant and then rightly rejecting them soundly. Proving that you never really grabbed a hold of them. We talked a little bit about that weeks ago in our study of 1 John. In other words, there is such a thing as too far gone. But it's something that only God knows. Because only God knows our hearts. Right? So there have been times when God has instructed, stop praying. Several times he says this to the prophet Jeremiah. We've been reading Jeremiah in our Old Testament before the Advent readings. Jeremiah 7, 16, he says, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. He says it two or three more times to the prophet Jeremiah about the people of God's rebellion. But I want you to notice that in this passage, which is, yeah, it's hard to get our heads around, but notice that John is not, he's not saying stop praying, and he's not even forbidding you to pray. He's just saying You don't need to. In good conscience, there may be times where you put your energy elsewhere. 
And you don't need to feel shame or guilt about that. To use some Jesus phrases, you shake the dust off your feet. You don't cast pearls before swine. You move on, you give them to the Lord, and you let Him ultimately deal with them. Nevertheless, prayer works. We have a standing before God. We have a promise that He hears us, that we have the requests we've asked, and we have a call to cry out to one another, excuse me, to cry out to Him on behalf of one another. That's the first truth and the primary thrust of this passage, but there's one more that we briefly go through that sums up the last four verses of the verse of the letter, and it's this. Not only do we know that prayer works, but we know we are not like the world. Kind of the last thing that John says, the last thing he reminds us of. And again, we've talked about this before as well. We try some so hard sometimes to be palatable to the world around us, to be palatable to the culture around us. John says, we're not like the world. There's a difference, a big difference, and it's a gift. We're holy. We're set apart. We're fundamentally different in three ways. Verses 18 and 19, we have a new identity. Right? We've experienced a new birth. We're living a new union. We're living our lives from a new position, a new standing, a new identity. And we possess a new power within us. Everything is different from the guy next door. We're now God's children, and so we're no longer slaves to our sin. We're not trapped in this cycle of continually sinning. Not only that, but we're not our own. But as the Catechism says, we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior. Sure, we still sin. Sure, we still battle with sin. But we do so resisting and repenting and abiding. We are no longer bound to the power of the evil one in this world. So remember your difference. But John speaks not only of a new identity, but the fact that we know the truth. Verse 20. I've said this before. Christmas is one of the oddest times of year, isn't it? We were watching as a family the Michael Buble Christmas special uh, last week that aired on network television. And at the end of the hour-long special, he performed with a boys' choir this moving rendition of Silent Night sang all the right words, declared the name of Jesus on national TV as the Holy One. And I just turned to Anna and I said, he's singing about our Savior. And millions of people are hearing this. Millions of people are hearing it and they're categorizing it. They're putting it on the shelf as a fairy tale. As a, as a cultural moment, as nostalgia. And I'm, I'm absorbing it as worship. Because this isn't a fairy tale. 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is coming again. And John packs into this one verse, verse 20, he, he packs the incarnation. He has come in the flesh. He packs in regeneration, the fact that we have been given the gift of faith, some of these things that, that he really unpacked in the letter that he now returns to just in passing. We are united to Christ and assured of eternal life. The gospel changes everything. We know the truth, not because we're smarter, but because we have been given the gift of faith. So we know we're not like the world. We have a new identity. We know the truth. And finally, John brings up the issue of worship. Verse 21 is maybe the oddest verse in the whole letter. Little children, keep yourself from idols. What are you talking about, John? Seems a little bit like it's out of left field. But it's actually not. Because these false teachers that John has been speaking of, that John has been honed in on for so much of his letter, their wrong view of God was idolatry. Idolatry is simply making anyone or anything greater than God, putting them in the place of God. We do this all the time. We make good things ultimate things. And John says, you're not like the world. You know the truth. You've been given the Lord Jesus. As Psalm 16 says, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. The Lord is our portion. And He's enough. He's more than enough. We know that we're not like the world. Brothers and sisters, while I don't know all the ways that God has used the book of 1 John in your lives, I know some of them, you've, some of you have talked to me. It's been encouraging. I trust that He has. Perhaps you needed to be assured that you are His child. Perhaps you needed to be reminded that you can have confidence that these things are true. Perhaps you needed to be challenged in your lack of love for one another. Or perhaps you need to be reminded even today that you can grab a hold of this difference of these gifts that are yours and mine as a result of new birth. We know prayer works. We know We are not like the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done in our midst as we have read your word, as we have allowed you, Holy Spirit, to take that word and to work on us. I pray as your prophet prayed that your word would not return to you void, but would accomplish everything that you desire it would accomplish in the lives of your people. May we go from this place encouraged and built up in the Gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done for us and live lives that overflow with love because we have been loved by Him. I pray all this with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.